everyone. Welcome. This is Quantum Nurse out of the rabbit hole from stress to bliss. And this is Grace Asagra, your host. Thank you for being with me. And for today, we have a guest and a special guest, a friend of mine, and he is Dr. Tom. And thank you for being here, Dr. Tom. And, and we're going to have a good conversation on what interests um, Tom and what interests me and all the viewers, okay? So let me just uh, remind the viewers that we, I created this podcast so that we could provide holistic methods and support the dementia caregiver so they could have a rewarding life. So we, I like to make this space as a safe space for practitioners, for those who wants to share, as well as to those who want to learn and have a better health, you know, and a good journey. So Tom is both an internist and an integrative medicine specialist. He has practiced for over 25 years. He has worked for corporate medicine for mom and pop not-for-profits, and as independent contractor. He writes articles at least weekly. You can find rough drafts of this at Facebook and with drtommd.com. He has a number of other degrees from psychology to English to business. He has a number of different certifications in integrative medicine and is board certified in both integrative medicine and internal medicine. His current interest is in the environmental medicine and how the sociopathic society has sidelined environmental causality of disease. So Tom, my first question is, you've been around for a while, you know, cause we know each other for a long time now before integrative word even became a buzzword, right? So sure. how did a regularly trained physician like you ended up in being an integrative physician? Well, um, that, you know, that's kind of, in my case, I couldn't, you know, I, I don't know that my case would be applicable to how most doctors uh, wind up in integrated medicine. But a long story short, I would say that when I went to medical school, uh, the option of going to naturopathic college or osteopathic college or something else was not on the radar. Okay, so in other words, I was already integrative my whole life. So <clears throat> there wouldn't be a place in conventional medicine uh, other than perhaps psychiatry at the time, back when I went to medical school, that would have interested me very much but uh, psychiatry in the late 1980s, the very late 1980s, decided it was part of mainstream medicine and became focused more or less on psychopharmacology. And so to me, the most interesting thing about uh, psychiatry, which was psychoanalysis and other forms of talk therapies and deep psychotherapies was being thrown by the wayside. So that left me essentially um, not many choices in terms of residency training. So <clears throat> internal medicine is a very straightforward uh, residency training. You're in the hospital, someone's dying in the ICU, you have to put fluids into them, 
there's not a lot of moral consideration or contemplation that is needed. You get people well and you send them home. That's your basic tenet of internal medicine training. Okay, and then you branch out from there. So um, most internists today have become hospitalists because they want to shift work and they do only hospital medicine <clears throat> and, or they are outpatient doctors just like fam family practitioners. But to a degree, internal medicine has lost its standing in that sense. It's no longer what it was either. So in your observation, what's going on with our society right now from health to a lot of other things? Do you think it's getting to the point that maybe it's better? Um, no, uh, I think it's, there, there are more choices to a degree particularly if you have money to buy those choices. But I think <clears throat> despite progress that we have made, society, American society, I will make a, a blanket statement that American society in general is a sociopathic society and has been since its inception. And I would have to explain that statement a little bit, perhaps. So I'll go ahead and explain that statement now. First of all, in the origin of life, symbiosis, or what we might call cooperation, was more important than selection or competition. And this is the way life progresses, is that uh, communities and species, even through hard negotiating, form cooperative uh, collections that promote the health of everybody or the existence of everybody and promote balance, the natural promotion over time is one of balance. Okay? Now, throughout history, of course, uh, people have noted that the human condition, what they call human nature sometimes, is one of strife and conflict and greed. But this is not human nature. Human nature is one of cooperation. But the human condition is that we fall off balance and we have a lot of problems because of that. So, so the first point being that cooperation is more important than survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest was never a, a term that Darwin coined. He never said that. that. That term was invented by social Darwinists in the 1800s in England to justify slavery. So the very notion of life being a competition in a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of world is one that promotes concepts such as slavery and the master-slave dynamic. When America was settled, you had basically a couple different impulses. And of course, that came back to the settling of um, South America as well, and all the way back to the 1400s, and you know, earlier than that as well. Um, uh, uh, when the first explorers came, there, there were basically two factions. And I'll refer people to anything by Wendell Berry as a writer, but he wrote a book a long time ago called the unsettling of America. And what he points out is that you had people that wanted to nurture land and take care of their space. You had people that wanted to conquest. So we've had this dynamic since our settling or what he called our unsettling, because in his view with the native peoples here, it was more cohesively and compassionately settled than after you know, Europeans came. So with this settling or unsettling of America, you had this strife between two different forces, one of nurturing and wanting to be part of nature, 
and one of exploitation and wanting to use things for wealth. Um, and this has stayed with us um, forever. This is the way America has been for 400 years and we've had, we had hundreds of years of slavery. We now have the worst distribution of wealth on earth of any nation. So we still have a master-slave dynamic that continues. And you can think of other parallel dichotomies or parallel divisions that go along with this. Okay, so at one point, the nurturers put a great emphasis on community. But over the same period of time, ideas and realities of communities have fallen apart. And what we see is essentially a collective and social narcissism, where it's what's right for me my personal relationship with my God. If I get ahead, it's because I'm one of God's chosen. Okay. Um, we see another division. We could say democracy as a development versus authoritarianism or dictatorship. And so what we've seen in America, particularly since the era of Ronald Reagan is pushes over and over again towards more authoritarianism, closer to being a dictatorship than being an actual democracy that puts the common good and the good of all first above everything else, rather than making more billionaires. And so what we've developed, particularly over the last 40 years, is a, a wealth governmental alliance to make rich people richer and do what rich people want and take money out of the common good, gut the public infrastructure, gut the pandemic team, gut everything that everyone might take advantage of. And so I guess if I were to put it <clears throat> to extremes, it would be the difference between what we have now, which is the 1% going rapidly towards gated communities and keeping everybody else out, or the more democratic way of doing things, which many countries do better than we do, which is nobody gets to be a billionaire until everyone has shelter, food, a retirement account, the ability to travel a little bit, a guaranteed basic income, and no reason to um, have a concern if they happen to be an artist or a scientist and don't want to be a money grubber out there working on Wall Street trying to make millions of dollars. And that would be another dichotomy. And I guess the way I could restate this is, is it going to be government by the people or is it going to be government by wealth? In America, has exported this around the globe. So it's not just America doing this kind of thing. And we see more and more authoritarianism everywhere right now. And what happens is that if you allow the world to be run with the only true motive of greed, or everything gets to be bought and so sold, then this translates into everything else. And so in essence, everybody and everything other than the people running the show become a commodity. So everything becomes bought and sold. And that would include, um, you know, uh, and I can call this the master-slave dynamic, or I can call this something that Charles Derber, a sociologist, calls militant capitalism. And if you talk about militant capitalism, in other words, exporting this master-slave dynamic and using a big army to keep things the way you want them, then America's right on top with that. No one can claim as much use of that type of power as we can. If anyone were to doubt that we are a sociopathic society, I can give very, very specific examples of things we have done 
and if we put them, if we imagined a society to be an individual, then only a sociopath would do these things. So the, the problem is, as it relates to the professions, is that the master-slave dynamic, the bought and sold motive, the bought and sold way of functioning, the corporatization of everything, the commoditization of everyone bleeds down. That's what really trickles down. Rich people's money doesn't trickle down to us, but the morality associated with maldistribution of wealth does trickle down. And so that morality influences everything. It influences the professions greatly. And I would say, you know, name any profession, I can tell you how it's being sidetracked away from its original intent because of the corporatization of the world and particularly of the United States, which continually tries to export its version of militant capitalism. Why don't you then speak about, you know, either the, in the medical field or in the nursing field? Okay. Well, the, the best example of unbridled, the best example to me, before I do that, of how things, how amorality trickles down is the legal profession. Because the legal profession is unregulated. And you have people argue that it's government regulation that's the problem. But the legal profession has no regulation. It's all lawyers deciding what lawyers do. So if a lawyer commits a crime, there's no agency to take his license away. The only way he can lose his license or have any punishment is to be sued, okay, or to be put in jail for an obvious crime. And of course, it will be other lawyers doing that. So there's an inherent conflict of interest. And this has gotten worse over time. We now see lawyers being in droves appointed to federal bench based on ideology and not their legal abilities. Okay, so I just want to point out that even in an unregulated profession, uh, this, this sociopathic nature of society trickles down. In fact, it's even worse because you don't really have any data. You can't tell how many lawyers are crooks. Now doctors, on the other hand, you can tell how many doctors are crooks. There's a high regulatory aspect to medicine. There's five or six or seven major agencies, including Mer uh, Medicare, which scrutinize doctors very, very well. So doctors and nurses and anyone with a license, anyone with a state license, is scrutinized and kept in line through regulation. For example, as a doctor, I can't refer somebody to a specialist and then have that specialist pay me for the referral. That's considered unethical. Okay, but um, <clears throat> this is not what happens when you look at the profession overall, because the profession of nursing, the profession of medicine have become cor corporatized. And particularly in the 1990s, we saw physicians basically sell out because regulation, in fact, made things so complex that physicians needed financial support and corporations started buying up physician, physician practices. And so now a lot of what the doctor does is has nothing to do with the notion of healing, but it has to do with what the doctor's quota needs to be and what the corporate rules are. Now, it doesn't mean that rules are not more in place for a doctor than they are a lawyer. Those rules certainly are more in place for a doctor, but there is inherent corruption 
that occurs because medicine, like nursing and like almost everything else, is part of a system that is sociopathic, that is militantly capitalist. And so <clears throat> I probably need to explain that a little better. First of all, just for future reference, medicine is not a science. This is a big mistake that people make. Medicine is based on applied science. So medicine takes what we know about various sciences, say biology, or say metabolism, or say physiology, and it attempts to help by saying, well, create a drug or create a method to help this specific metabolic problem, then we can help this disease. Unfortunately, with that type of model where you actually don't have a science of health or a science of medicine, but you have applied sciences applied to a human being, you often do not address the human being. And so what you get instead is a more or less piecemeal set of specialties and general medicine, which attempt to linearly influence um, specific formulas, so inputs. And the outcomes and the inputs are linear. They are go from A plus B equals C, increase C and you get some more A and B. That's the basic simplistic idea of medicine. This is a science of how do you push things around. Okay, and so what medicine mostly does is manage illness. If you can think of an illness that medicine actually cures, then let's think of one now. I'll just give a pause there. You know, other than if you think that someone has an infection and you put an antibiotic on it or give them an antibiotic and that goes away, you might call that a cure. There are reasons that I would not call that a cure, but we could, we could say, okay, that's a cure. Or if somebody has a vitamin C deficiency and they're getting scurvy and we give them vitamin C, then we can call that a cure because we corrected the nutrition. Or if somebody has a bleeding artery because someone cut them in the leg and their femoral artery is bleeding, then you get a surgeon and you sew it up and they're better. And we can say that's a cure. In fact, that's a heroic, almost a, uh, it's a save. It's a cure and it's a save. Okay, and so these things medicine are, is pretty good at, but that's not most of medicine. Most of medicine is trying to uh, influence an imbalance in the human system, and it tries to do it by addressing only the part it knows about that imbalance. So the problem there is <clears throat> that when you get pharmaceutical companies that now basically have said, along with regular conventional medicine, which for a long time, despite, it get, despite the fact that professors in medicine will deny this, medicine for a long time has said, give me a drug that will cure this. Okay, so when you only have drugs, you only have piecemeal solutions. So medicine, 90% of medicine, what it actually prescribes is giving a drug to influence one part of the problem often a powerful drug and often a dangerous drug, or cutting something off or sewing something up. And that's pretty much how you can describe medicine. Now, the problem with that is when most of your therapies producing new drugs and you've got 
what we will call big pharma in charge and big pharma has to show a quarterly profit and does all dictating the treatment and the cure if there's ever a cure or the management of the disease are studies that basically see what the better drug is and very little is given to actually what's wrong with the human being what needs to be healed what overall more integrative or holistic system can reset this balance so that the person doesn't need a drug. Okay, just one quick example. Most type two diabetes can be reversed with a nutrient dense anti-inflammatory diet. And there are doctors, you know, I, you know, I'm not talking about all doctors in terms of everyone being part of the militant capitalism. There's many groups of doctors who realize parts of this or realize all of this and take another method or take another path. So there are doctors that have written very good books on, you know, eat a plant-based diet and reverse your diabetes, particularly if you catch it early, particularly if it's before it's fixed and too late. Okay, now here's what I mean by the nature of the sociopathic society and how it applies to medicine. How many doctors in your life, in your experience as a nurse, in your experience with patients, have you ever heard that the first suggestion was, let's reverse your diabetes? None. Okay. And it would be very, very, very rare even now. So you see, you asked me if things have gotten better. Well, they have in the sense that are, there are way more people like me that, than 40 years ago. 40 years ago it was difficult to do this stuff. And you still had to keep a very low radar because somebody was likely to ruin your practice. But that hasn't changed that much not in corporate medicine. I've worked for many corporations and if I started fixing people, it often was consternation to the primary care doctors and it always got, got me into trouble. And that's even relatively recently, say 10 years ago. Okay, so medicine is sociopathic in the sense that it's sociopathic by collusion. Doctors and the profession turn away from a better way, a better way because number one, the ability to pursue that better way is not funded. The buy and sell system does not fund doctors who spend two hours on a first visit with their patient. And that was the minimum time I spent when I worked for the corporation I worked for as a primary care doctor. And in fact, it was more cost effective. The eight minute visit uh, of the average practice at that time uh, uh, required about 30 patients a day to, to break even for that doctor who got an advance from the corporation. I required 12 patients a day because I spent a lot of time. I charged as much as Medicare would allow for that two hours or two and a half hours. I, I did take a loss, but then I spent a lot of time and had high level charges and I had only one staff person because I didn't... <clears throat> worry about providing ancillary services in order to make money. So I didn't have the salaries and the way I made money was spending time with my patients and it still worked. But the other primary care physicians, their patients started coming to me for problems that would not be addressed by regular medicine. Okay. So in other words, um, you have someone with intractable vertigo without a known cause, you have a good answer. Okay, all the drugs have failed and everything else. Okay, and so 
someone comes to me in one visit, I say, help them in some way, even cure them in one visit or two. And this, rather than creating interest, this not only created furor among the physicians who thought they were losing their quota and losing their patients, but it recreated a conflict between the three CEOs of the company, the one who wanted to promote this stuff, the one that didn't know, and the one that was the head CEO that didn't want to hear anything from his unrest as to what I was doing. And so that was the end of that job. And I will tell you that um, really, really helping people often does not fit in with corporate medicine. Okay, because corporate medicine is interested in how many MRIs have you ordered this month? They won't tell you that because it's illegal, but that's what they are interested in. And how much money do you produce? Okay, so once again, we're back to the same thing. If profit is your main motive, then the situation, the people, the entities, the corporations will conspire to increase profits regardless of other considerations and here we have the same trickle-down sociopathic morality that's affecting everyone else perhaps it doesn't affect medicine as much but it does significantly during this pandemic time is anyone making money sure lots of people are making money if you want to i mean it's it's not a pretty, um, um, it's not a pretty answer to that. During the pandemic, um, billionaires have increased their wealth just over about a period of two to three months by about $500 billion. Whereas average people have lost about $3 trillion so far. So once again, this pattern does not change. Okay. <clears throat> one tenth of 1% of Americans own 40% of the wealth in this country, 40 to 50%. The, Wal the Walton family, the, the Walmart heirs, the, the four of them, three or four of them alone own as much wealth as the bottom 40% of Americans. Okay, and we can go on with these types of statistics. 14,000 families actually get ahead when you adjust for real income. And they are the one-tenth of 1% 1 at the top. Their average annual income uh, is $25 million, maybe $30 million, the average, okay, annual income. And that doesn't talk about their investments or anything else. And their taxes are generally way lower to non-existent compared to what you and I pay. And this structure has been implemented since the 1950s. In the 1950s, what we had was the New Deal by Franklin D. Roosevelt to get us out of the Great Depression. And the New Deal meticulously said, we have to distribute wealth. We have to have progressive taxation. So if you made more than X amount of money, say $50 million, anything over $50 million was taxed 70%. If you made more than 100 million, and I'm just throwing, I'm making up these particular figures, but the essence of it is correct. Over $100 million, your taxes were 90%. If you only made $20,000, you didn't pay any taxes. If you only made $50,000, you paid 5%. You made $100,000, you paid 10% and so on. Okay, now he did a lot of other things too. He, if you really study, in a book on this if for people that are interested would be The Conscience of a Liberal by Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman is a Nobel laureate economist. 
many Nobel laureate, laureate economists have exposed what's going on in America. Uh, Paul Krugman, Joseph Stiglitz, James Galbraith, and others. But unfortunately, they don't go into politics and they don't run our country. Okay. Uh, the information is out there, though. So if you read that book, you'll find out, well, you know, Roosevelt did some other things. He said, the CEO's salary cannot be more than 100 times that of the worker. He said, until every worker's salary goes up to X, the, the executives do not get a pay raise until every worker's salary goes up to X. So there wasn't just distribution of wealth through progressive taxation. There was distribution of wealth through regulation. And that era from... 1950 almost to 1980 was the most prosperous time in America when you had real income. More people got ahead. You had the biggest middle class. Union attendance was two or three times what it is now. Now in the 50s, there was a group of politicians and others that called themselves movement conservatives, basically of the Republican Party. And uh, not all of the Republican Party, but basically of the Republican Party. And they hated FDR with a vehemence. They hated the New Deal with a vehemence, and they decided right then and there that they were going to start working politically, no matter how long it took, to take us back to pre-Great Depression parameters, which meant concentration of wealth among the wealthy, undermining social programs, and Reagan was the poster child for this. Ronald Reagan was the poster child for this. Ronald Reagan said, basically, you know, we're going to make the and everyone else will be better off. And that was where trickle-down economics really got its, um, its formalization and has been the big lie ever since. Okay, so, um, no, uh, there are people making a lot of money during the pandemic, um, but they are either very, very lucky entrepreneurs people that played the, the stock market knowing what was coming. And of course, playing the stock market doesn't really do any good for anyone other than the, the individual that's gambling. And then rich people who basically pull the strings. Now, what's happened over that period of time from let's say 1950 until now <clears throat> is that the more power, the, because of maldistribution of wealth, the more power that the wealthy get, buy and sell our politics. And the more they lobby and the more politicians get money from the wealthy. And study after study has demonstrated that politicians listen to the concerns of the wealthy. All politicians, some less, some more. Okay, maybe you have less listening to the wealthy among Democrats, but they still do because they're part of the same dysfunctional sociopathic system. This is how it works. If you don't raise enough money to get reelected, you don't get reelected. And your rich donors, particularly now after Citizens United by the Supreme Court, after that decision, rich donors have more power and more say. And then they influence the laws. So how does this apply to medicine? Well, up until the 1940s, we were way more concerned about carcinogenicity of what we put in our food and into our environment than we were after that. You know, after the 1940s, business got a lot of the laws reversed and said, we want a special counsel to look at the safety issues and the standard, once again, under Ronald Reagan in 1980, the standard became, you have to weigh any risk of an industrial chemical or anything else against 
the benefit. And if the benefit happens to be profit, then that can be a reason that the benefit outweighs the risk. I'm not making this stuff up. You cannot make this stuff up. Okay. This is all now a, a good book to understand that would be a brand new book called Sensitives. Um, and this book, uh, some of this, I'm not going to have the authors off the top of my head, but you can look it up online. Just go to the Sensitives Amazon and you'll get the book. And this is about people that are a hidden group almost who have a hidden disease almost, which is what we used to call multiple chemical sensitivity. Okay. And after, for a lot of individuals, a lot, perhaps 30% of our population, once you're exposed to enough toxicity, you become sensitive to everything. And there's all sorts of cross reactivity and people get very ill. They won't be diagnosed by medicine. They're considered to have psychological problems often because the doctors just don't know what to do. And they're out there on their own suffering with their own community, not getting a lot of help. And that's even assuming that there is help because if we are going to help these people, we have to figure out the, how to reverse the ravages of an environment, which is completely toxic compared to what it should be. We have 80,000 pesticides and industrial chemicals on the market. Now, what would you guess in terms of how many have been adequately tested for human safety out of 80,000? Not a lot. One, seven, 17, 10 plus seven, not 10,000, mm -hmm. 17. And in terms of, testing these chemicals for toxicity in children, one out of 80,000 has been adequately tested. Businesses since cigarettes. In 1936, it was well known that cigarettes were causing lung cancer. That information was suppressed. It was suppressed until, until the lawsuits in the 1990s. There was plenty of scientific data information, but you know, the cigarette companies were a powerful lobbying agency, number one. Politicians were loath to go around after these companies and create laws that would force them to reveal their data. And so until there were big lawsuits, nothing happened. So this is how many years, 50 years of death and destruction in the name of profit. And business and government has done this with industrial chemicals as well. We're at least 20 years behind the European Union on a precautionary rule, which says you can't put it into the environment and expose people massively until you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's safe. We don't do that. We did do that up until 1940. That was the rule up until 1940. But uh, along with, it's funny how things go together because along with movement conservatism arose this idea of deregulating everything so that profit mongers can have their way. And enough profit outweighs the risk of causing cancer in people. So the medical profession, uh, okay, just to make the point to people out there, how many doctors, and you're in integrative medicine, you're in a holistic medicine, you know people like me, but how many people have you ever heard talk like me? No, <laughs> not <laughs> a lot either. There's yeah. more that says they're integrative, but still, yeah. So this is what I found as well, is that I have a lot of colleagues that I like, um, and they're very uh, purist. Well, not a lot, but I have a, a good handful of colleagues I really like who are very deep into integrative medicine or homeopathy or, or whatnot. 
But what occurred to me quite some time ago is that medicine, the profession of medicine is guilty by collusion. And this has been for a long, long time. Okay. How many doctors, you know, every doctor, I mean, 90% of doctors should be part of, you know, a social activist movement and a movement against environmental destruction, a movement against um, uh, the, the big pharma cr crimes that occur, a movement against um, corporatization of medicine, a movement against hurting people, a movement against children in cages. Now, some doctors are, and there are some movements, you know, positions for ethical concerns and things like this, but it's a very tiny percentage of doctors that have any interest in this whatsoever. And this gets to a bigger picture. Uh, and the bigger picture is this is, goes back to, this is part of our society. Our society is extremely narcissistic. Our, each generation has become more narcissistic than the last generation. My generation was pretty narcissistic because we were, I, I was right after the ba baby boomers. Uh, now, on the one hand, the baby boomers brought us, helped with the civil rights, civil rights movement, uh, uh, and brought us feminism and a whole lot of good things and a whole lot of bad things, but a whole lot of good things. But it was, a, it was, a, it was not like the community-oriented one-for-all and all-for-one type of generation, a little less, and the next generation a little less, and the next generation a little less. Part of what has influenced that is cell phones and the digital world and Facebook and everything else. If you have people that spend seven hours a day on the computer on Facebook and have it attached to their phone and it wakes them up at night, the part of their brain that has to do with aggression and fight flight grows. The, the parts of the amygdala grow. Parts of the parts of the brain that you don't want to grow, grow. And so this is why you see teenagers sitting on the couch texting each other when they're sitting next to each other because having eye contact and dealing with emotions is too difficult. So our technology itself which we never use a precautionary rule with because profit is more important, is actually promoting narcissism within a sociopathic society. And when you promote narcissism within a sociopathic society, you get more sociopathic. And a key thing that psychologists, some psychologists and some psychiatrists have realized this, but they have not stated it as a group and it is not, not generally in the awareness, which is that much psychopathology, much mental illness is produced by a mentally ill society, not by the individual. But everybody wants to treat the individual as if it's just their problem. And it's funny how things go together. As we went from prior to 1940 saying, it's gotta be safe before you put it in the food. And we went to the profit can outweigh the risk. If there's enough profit, it benefits society, trickle down once again. So it outweighs the risk. Okay, well, the same thing has happened with psychology. Instead of saying we have to fix the society, we say we have to fix the individual. And what the businesses did is they displaced risk management onto the individual. So now it was the individual's responsibility to buy a new device, to monitor their pulse, or buy a new device to see if they've got poisons in their food. It was all on you to spend more money in a whole new industry that came up to try to protect you from the toxicities that industry created in the first place. Just imagining like, it's kind of like a small a family. If, 
if you're the you know the children and they're your parents and you have some difficulty and your parents may not be there because they said it's all on you. Uh, but what do you what can you say about those uh, corporations and on those individuals that are really on the top one percent or five percent and they they keep donating they keep they, that's what I hear or there are some statistics there that they give a lot of money to um, some a lot of projects like non nonprofit organizations and the you know just also social not sociopathic but sociological um, issues that organizations like even non government NGOs but they keep giving that but they may also have their money in the same corporations that are not really very helpful for the rest of the population. So what I say about that is that might be a nice way for them to assuage any remote sense of guilt that they might still have. Okay, um, but you know, because of cognitive dissonance, rich people tend to think that they are very deserving of their wealth, even if they've depleted entire infrastructures to get it. Okay, and so without progressive taxation and distribution of wealth, that never works. Donations by rich people never fixed a social structure in our entire history. And it's a false security to say, well, rich people have a place because they're gonna give to charity. Bill Gates did not give anything to, to charity, charity till the end, till he was worth 80 billion. His father had to get on TV and say, no, 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 he's got a plan, he's gonna give. So he created a foundation under the concept of strategic giving, which means Bill Gates wants to vaccinate all of the third world, even if there are vaccines that are even outlawed in other countries. He's not too particular about the safety of vaccines. And he wants to vaccinate children because then his assumption is, and this, this was actually written down, that the people in poorer countries will be able to have less children because more of their children will survive. And if more of their children survive and they have less children, they will be richer. And if they are richer, they can buy Microsoft products. So his foundation in its conception was to create more customers to make him richer. Okay, so big misconception to say that donations and sure, it's wonderful. If I had enough money, man, I'd give it all away. That's fine. Okay, but that doesn't take care of social security. It doesn't take care of Medicare. These are immense sums that have to come out of the tax base. Now, <clears throat> we are on the bottom of advanced nations in distribution of wealth. In fact, we now have, if you really look at it, we have the worst distribution of wealth on earth, just about. But among advanced nations, we're on the bottom. There's very good research on this, 70, 80 years of data by, it's called the spirit level by two researchers out of England, Wilkinson and Pickett. What they discovered that you can take any parameter you wanna look at that might be contributing to bad outcomes in a society, like murders, people in jail, bad health outcomes and whatnot. Or you can look at parameters that create good outcomes in a society. And they looked at 15 advanced nations and they looked at the 50 United States and compared them. Okay, and they have decades of data. As it turns out, the single strongest correlate to good outcomes in a society and having less people in jail, healthier everybody, including rich people, is 
equitable distribution of wealth. That's the only factor that influences everything, which is why they called this the spirit level. Now, it doesn't matter if you do it through welfare, through equal opportunity and support system. It doesn't matter how you create equitable distribution of wealth. If it's progressive taxation, if it's a flat tax, it doesn't matter. The more equitably wealth is distributed, the better your social outcomes, period. So New Hampshire and Vermont as examples. For Vermont is kind of a hippy-dippy state. That's where I would live. And they, they do a lot of social welfare and everything else. New Hampshire is kind of like a live or die state, but they take care of everyone and do a lot of equal opportunity and support systems. They both do well among the, the, the 50 United States. The states in the Deep South who have been way behind on social efforts and still are, do the worst. So it's direct. I mean, there isn't any doubt that a society that is better off and a society that is happier, take Norway, the happiest society on earth, all their people. Nobody is in fear of starvation. Nobody is in fear of being destitute when they retire. Okay. If you look at longevity, the five longest lived communities in the world, the five common elements are a plant-based diet, having legumes in the diet, family comes first, everybody has a place in the culture and nobody is left out or left alone or left destitute, and people are physically active throughout the day. Okay, now we don't know how to weight these factors, but once again, you notice that the social construct of everyone being taken care of is ultimately important, even for longevity. So, I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, but having rich people give donations to assuage their inner guilt that they don't even know about, I don't think it's a good answer. Because like I, I heard today that they're going to release, I, I'm not sure if to, because I, I don't, I stopped listening to mainstream news. So they said that they're going to distribute again uh, money, so, then so i know that others who they've never they, for years now they haven't been working and they're in welfare so they're just happy to receive it um but then i kind of worry also that the economy is really going down because a lot of businesses are not operating the way they should operate so what what do we do with that or how do we take that Okay. Yeah. Well, are, if we go a little over here, is that going to be okay? Or yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. I want to know how much I should go into to answer that question. Oh. Um, people, Americans in particular, are brainwashed. Okay. They've been brainwashed over a long period of time, such as socialism is like communism. Well, the best democracies that do the best are social democracies. They have what the, the right on this and would call socialism, but socialism, communism, capitalism, it doesn't matter. There's many, many isms. You have to use the tools that you need in a society to make a society work. So social safety nets make a society better. Now, Americans get brainwashed by statements like, government is just interfering. You shouldn't have a government. No, that's not true. You shouldn't have a government that's directed by rich people and is part of a plutocracy, an oligarchy, a kleptocracy. You shouldn't have a government that's enabling rich people to further steal from everybody. You should not have that, okay? 
So it's not that government the, that shouldn't do anything. Government should do what it's supposed to do. Our government's been bought and sold when the Russians, the Russian mob came to America in the late 70s and laundered their money through Trump's properties. They were delighted because they said, oh my goodness, bribery in America is legal. In Russia, we have to keep it under wraps. In America, you just hire a lobbyist and you bribe the politicians to do what you want. Now, you see, so Americans think that we live in a democracy and they're brainwashed into thinking things by statements like, we're still the best damn country on earth. We're the, still the most free country on earth. Well, not if you are the bottom on distribution of wealth, you're not that free, okay? And what you're kind of asking is, well, what about the cost? Okay, Americans have no concept of the costs of the cost of socialism for the rich. The bailout of AI, which was one corporation one time, was equal, that one bailout one time, was equal to what we spent on public welfare, all public welfare, from 1990 to 2006. 16 years of what we spend on taking care of everyone that isn't well off in one corporate bailout. Now every day we do a corporate subsidy or a corporate loophole or a corporate tax haven. If we got rid of all that stuff, instead of having a sociopathic society, if we had an equitable society, no one needs food, no one needs shelter, no one needs to worry about an income, nobody needs to worry about retirement and we would still have a surplus. That's the fact of the figures. If you adjust for real income, let's say you're a young couple right now, and this, this, this work here is, um, um, oh, I will get the reference in a minute. Uh, this work here though is in a trilogy, an economic trilogy, um, starting with the book called Perfectly Legal, How the tech, Tax System is Screwing You and Everybody Else. Okay, um, the second book in the series is called uh, Free Lunch, and the third book in the series is called Fine Print. Just look it up on Amazon. The author was given the tax beat at the New York Times, and everyone, all of his colleagues said, oh, this is terrible, this is the most boring thing, and he learned a lot about economics, and he pointed out in his first book, which is 10 or 12 years old now, so go back 10 or 12 years, and it's much worse now, said if you would really adjust for real income and your family raising two kids, and you're gonna put them through college, everybody's going to have a bank account, everybody's gonna be reasonably comfortable and safe, the break even for that is $500,000 a year. Now, as it turns out, over a lifetime, now as it turns out, and this is why everyone in the household is now working, this is why both parents always work. And so you have a lawyer and a doctor in a household, they're making, let's say, a combined income of $400,000, they're still not breaking even in these terms. As it turns out, if you distributed the GDP and you had a, an equitable bell curve distribution of wealth, the median income in America would be $500,000. The median income in reality is $50,000, 10 times less than it should be on an equitable distribution of wealth. Okay, so, and that would still leave us, that's not going into debt, okay? That would be just based on our productivity. Okay, so people don't understand that if we took away corporate loopholes, corporate tax breaks, and corporate subsidies, we still subsidize oil, for goodness sake. We, we subsidize monocrop corn instead of small family farm organic food. So if we just took away all the major subsidies for big business and let them 
break up and, and stop being monopolies and everything else, we would not only have a surplus, nobody in this country would be hungry. And if we did the same thing globally, it'd be the same story. So once again, back to the master-slave dynamic, this is what you get. And you get a lot of people worried about spending. Now, during this pandemic, what we've spent, what has been given to the average people is nothing compared to what has been given to billionaires and rich people. It's nothing compared to it. They've made out like bandits. You know, Mr. Trump has helped his cronies make millions and billions off of this pandemic. Okay, right now, today, as we speak, Trump took away the data collection from hospitals by the CDC and gave it to a private company, which he vetted in the middle of the pandemic. They have no capability to do this adequately, but he doesn't want the CDC reporting actual figures. And I guarantee you that the implication is that uh, this is being reported on by NPR right now, that they have changed their story about how, oh, it wasn't just given to this company. There was actually a vetting and many people applied for it. Apparently that's not true necessarily, but it looks like this company is in line to get many, many contracts in the future. So once again, it's the government, the public-private alliances. The public-private alliances are what have gotten us in serious trouble because government is run by the private interests. I will give you one exam medical example that haunts me every day. And this one has to do with vaccinations. If you read a book called The HPV Vaccine on Trial, uh, Finding Justice for a Generation, uh, just Google that on Amazon and you'll find it. This was written by a bunch of lawyers who represented many of the women who have been damaged by the HPV vaccine. The HPV vaccine was an invention by two guys at the NIH. So it was funded with public money, with your taxes and my taxes. Yeah. That's the first point to understand. The invention was new, it was a DNA-like particle, and it's a similar type of technology to what they're talking about with Moderna right now to do a corona vaccination. Okay, so once this thing was invented, they pushed it through testing. They actually gave the safety testing and the clinical trials to Merck the drug company. Merck basically had uh, three um, uh, uh, groups, an experimental group, a pseudo, uh, a pseudo placebo group, and a placebo group. Now, the, the, the experimental group was, had the DNA-like particle in the vaccination. The pseudo placebo, the false SIBO, the false SIBO group as they term it in the book, had everything, including aluminum, mercury, whatever, except for the DNA-like particle. And there were a thousand people in each group. This is the initial studies. Now, they had a saline group of just saline solution, which has nothing about the vaccine in it. And they had 250 people in that group. Okay, so there were no deaths or side effects in the saline group. The deaths and side effects in the other two groups are equal. And Merck casually said, there weren't enough people in the saline group, we can't use that as a placebo, so we're using the second group as the placebo. So in other words, the safety testing was entirely invalid. And if you look at all of the HPV type vaccines and all of the safety testing, it was equally rushed and equally poorly done. They confounded phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, and they overlapped the trials before they knew anything from the first trial. So by the time they were doing phase three or four, they hadn't even gotten the data back from phase one or two. Okay, and then 
without scrutiny. And there's some very big anomalies about deaths and autoimmune disease and everything else that happened to the, the volunteers, which was not scrutinized by the FDA. Uh, it was not noted in the New England Journal of Medicine when this stuff was published. They have advertisers too, you know. They, they knew about the data, but they did not publish the negative data. So it was rushed through every committee, the entire process. The first year, Merck made something like $1.2 billion off the sale of the vaccine. The two inventors got $100,000 kickback each, and then NIH got a million dollars kickback the first year. Now, this is what I mean by there might still be ethical doctors, but medicine itself is part of the sociopathic society and has become corrupt because of the buy and sell nature of what we do. If a doctor did this type of behavior, he'd be in jail. But because this is the way we do things, you know, not to mention that the companies are held immune from any liability for anything that happens to people. Okay, not to mention that despite the fact that this is an unethical and unscientific methodology of creating vaccines, brainwashing, what we don't want to believe about ourselves, has seen to it that almost, you know, the vast majority of physicians and healthcare professionals think that if you talk about this in any negative way whatsoever, you're a nutcase. Okay, but I'll tell you what, the Moderna vaccine, the COVID vaccine, is, a, is a, a new mRNA technology that has not been tested. What it does is it infects all of your cells with an mRNA-like particle, and the, the information on what exactly that is is not very clear. This tricks the nucleus of your cell into producing a protein which attaches to the outside of your cells and creates an antigen, which then evokes the immune response. Now, what this does in the long term to your cellular dynamics and structure is a complete unknown. What it might do is not being talked about. Okay, now you can contrast this with the, um, the COVID vaccine group in England, which is not going to be based on a profit motive. It's gonna be in, an, in, a, in, a, in a single payer system where nobody makes huge profits off of it. What they've done is they've infected a viral cell and had the virus produce the antigen. Then they infect you with a virus that presumably doesn't hurt you. So at least they're not infecting your cells. They're, they're hijacking a virus to produce the antigen, which in theory is gonna be a lot safer vaccine. And in theory, because there isn't as much profit motive involved, they will do better testing than what we're doing. But I will tell you right now, hands down, no one's ever sticking me with that vaccine. Okay. I didn't even, so I didn't even know that there's a difference of the vaccine, like in, in one country than the vaccine here. So yes. that's what I heard from you. Yeah, yeah there, there's probably a dozen different manufacturers take with a different take on this. Yeah. Okay. And the two major ones are the ones, the two ones getting the most scrutiny are the ones I mentioned. Okay. But in America, particularly, and it's true around the world, but in America, particularly, you got to remember, fast profits can outweigh the risk. Yeah. This has become the American way, which I'm certainly ashamed of. Okay, so then I think the issue becomes, what can we do about this? Okay, and this is where I, I don't have compliments for any particular group. I, I don't have compliments for new age people. I don't have compliments for me particularly. I don't have co co 
compliments for liberal people and I don't have compliments for conservative people because things are still just comfortable enough with the worries not being addressed that people are, and people are just harassed enough, kept tired enough, kept in an anxious state enough, but just well off enough that people that could have power don't do a whole lot. It's like I was talking about the physicians that don't join groups against environmental destruction or don't join groups against climate change. But people are tired, you know, everybody's stressed, okay? But I don't have compliments for any specific group because the only thing that's going to cure this, how do you cure a sociopathic society? How do you make your medicine better? How do you change the entire structure, okay? And the things that are needed to change our social structure are things that have been needed for a long time. We've done bits of them. We've had great theorists and great statesmen tell us what to do, but then that gets exported to other countries. They implement it and they have a better culture and then we don't do it because it doesn't fit the conveyor belt system of this many in, this much money out. Many people across Europe, many thinkers across Europe and the rest of the world think that this export by America of the almighty dollar first has undermined heritage and culture everywhere. And to an extent it really has through the Washington, what was called the Washington Consensus, where the World Trade Organization said, unless you liberalize your markets, unless you let the big corporations come in, unless you let the free flow of money happen without restriction, then you can't belong to our club. And the companies back in the, I mean, the countries back in the 80s that were up and coming countries that went along with it got severely hurt. Okay, the countries that stayed out of it, like China and did their own thing, did pretty well monetarily. Okay, so we've exported this. It's always better to let businesses run thing, this concept. It's not, you have to regulate. If you don't regulate, you just are going along with the biggest brainwashing myth of all is that there's such a thing as a free market. There is no such thing as a free market. Markets are created by the rules, the economic rules that societies apply. And when the rules are bought and sold in the favor of rich people, your market sub subsidizes the rich. That's what we have. So the notion of a free market, there could be a market that's freer for everyone and everyone gets more wealth, but it's not what we have. Okay, so what can we do about it? First of all, <laughs> first of all, I don't have a lot of compliments for everyone because the only way you're gonna cure a sociopathic society is through unified activism. Now the book, everyone should read on this, everyone. I would make it a requirement to vote if you had to read one book to vote. It's called Welcome to the Revolution, Universalizing Resistance by Charles Durber, the same guy that wrote a book called Sociopathic Society back in 2012. He's a sociologist. Welcome to the Revolution talks about silo activism. We have plenty of good people working on their cause. You know, Greenpeace, Save the Whales, Climate Change, um, Save the Forests, uh, the Animals. Now all of these things are easily undermined and have been, have been over the last years by one psychopath writing a signature in the White House, okay? And he has set back environmental protections and social pr protections decades just with his signature and who he appoints to regulatory agencies, which are now all churning out things for him, not for environmental protection even, okay? So how do you fix this? You have to get all the psycho, 
the, the silo activism, which is very energetic people on one cause, everybody has to unify. And way, way, way more people have to become activists in some way. This is why I don't have compliments for any particular group. It does no good to be very spiritual and holistic and help the people around you um, to the extent that it's monastic, it's not helping. To the extent that it's activist and community-based, it is helping. So, it, And we have so many of the subcultures, subgroups, and sometimes I, I feel like or I hear that they, some group, they cannot seem to to see that they have to connect or see that, you know, the concern of one group is still a concern of the other. So instead of specializing too much on one particular uh, agenda, then if one could, you know, expand their, their thinking more and their perception more, because I see that also in, in holistic nursing, you know, when there's some who claim they're holistic nurses, but then they cannot even see that relationship of what's happening now, okay? Um, that's also sad for me to see that. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And it gets to the thing, and this is my latest project. This is what my brain is working on. I don't know the answer, you know, which is frustrating for me because I always think I know the answer to everything. You know, internists, most internists were, were so trained and tested. We're all big know-it-alls and we all talk too much. Um, or we're real quiet and think too much. So, you know, but I don't know the answer right now. And I, you know, I'm not sure the book actually gets to an answer, but it does get to some suggestions. And the big question is, <clears throat> how do we unify the silo activism? How do we get all activists out onto the streets? I will tell you, you know, from my experience, my various trainings, all of them, the conclusion I come up with is if we were an activist society and we cared about this country, most of us, 70% of us would be out on the streets every week just to meet the challenge that we're looking at right now. If we were to meet that challenge, so the goal would be that the seven out of 10 Americans who actually are progressive and who actually want all of the things that someone like Bernie Sanders talked about, universal health care, get rid of student debt, enhance social security, Medicare for all, you know, all this stuff. If those seven out of 10 people really, really would understand how much dire straits we are in, and really felt they could act on it instead of just think about it. We all in this country have a big tendency to think that since we can conceive of something, since we can have an opinion, since we can still function that we're actually doing something. Okay, and we also tend to think that since we are helping the people around us that we're doing enough. We also think that that's all we can do. We also tend to, in, in the new age world, we tend to think the more spiritual I become, the more it shines a light. And that's, well, you know, that's what many spiritual cultures have thought and sat there thinking that right when the conquistadors came in and cut our, off everybody's heads. 
Okay, so we had a trend in spirituality where we went from monastic religions, where the most important thing was the monk with his beggar bowl, to a religion that said the most important thing is the works. The most important thing is what you're doing and who you're helping and what you're giving up, not how much wealth you're accumulating. In America, much of Christianity has become a money cult. And if anyone doubts that, read a very good book. It's called The Money Cult. Uh, the End of Capitalism, Christianity in America. Just look it up on Amazon. One of the, my most highly recommended reads. Okay. And over time, the people, many of who, religious people, many of whom are aligned with the Trump administration, have decided that being well off and being wealthy is just proof that one is one of God's chosen. So we went from religion in America with, say, the Puritans being something about taking care of everybody in the community to being about a personal relationship with God or Jesus and taking care of oneself. Now, to some extent, the New Age community is, is at fault in this respect because you hear things all the time like, well, if you, wanna, if you don't feel good about something, just have the right attitude. Or if you... If you are spiritually enhanced enough, you will dissolve these problems. Well, not if you're sitting in your house watching your, you know, 18-foot movie theater in the back of your house and having your rich friends over, okay? Or even if you're middle class and, you know, you're taking care of your kids okay, your neighbors are okay, you think everything's okay, and you're very disturbed about all these damn protesters, and you think maybe the feds should be in there breaking up these violent people but you have no clue as to why those protesters are there. So, you know, back to what can we do? Okay, the main thing is to unify activism, but what you can do, what I can do, first of all, um, concentrate on food. Demand that you get organically grown, small family farm food, okay? If everyone did that, we would change the nature of the globe right now because the entire structural business system would change, okay? Uh, you're not going to get it unless you can go and look for it. But right now, that's an elitist activity. I was shopping in a farmer's market today, and they wanted $2.50 for an organic tomato fresh off the vine. Okay, $2.50. Who can afford that? Okay, per tomato, and they were small tomatoes. Okay, that's, by my calculations, it was $7.50 a pound. You know, I can go get organic um, tomatoes and Kroger for $2 a pound, but they're not local, supporting a local economy. So you gotta say, well, what the heck is happening here? Well, what's happening here is that these, these people have a community shared food thing where people that join and pay them so much a month get what they send them. So they go to the market first and they jack up the price three times and say, if I can sell it for three times to the rich people, I make a profit and then I send the leftovers to the people paying me on a monthly basis. This is the good entrepreneurial way, right, in America? But this is the way America has always suffered with this, this entrepreneurial sense, okay? Everybody should get the best deal. Demand good food, that's the first thing. Demand therapies that don't give you a drug and don't give you surgery. There may not be an option sometimes, okay? But unless you're gonna die, demand something else because that, you know, and there are, doctors out there doing this. 
There are nurses out there doing this. There are DOs, MDs out there doing this. Functional medicine. Look at the website, functionalmedicine.org. At least they're looking at underlying disease mechanisms. They're not perfect, but at least they're going to give you a supplement before they give you a drug, and it's going to be based on lab measurement. Look at homeopathic.org. There's energy medicine. It's systematized. It has an evidence base. It has 1,500 clinical trials, 22 out of 24 positive meta-analysis, and it cures many diseases that medicine can't touch. Demand it, because you know how many MD homeopaths there are in my state? This is, uh, in my state, my entire state, there are seven that have a DO or an MD. And everybody else has a variety of trainings. Some people are lay people. Um, some of the best homeopaths I know now are naturopaths, NDs, some of the best in the world. Because medicine, when it became a sociopathic appendic, appendage to the sociopathic society in the 1930s, with the Flexton Report and other regulations that happened, threw out its homeopathy, closed down all its colleges, got rid of it. It wasn't part of the conveyor belt profit-making system, even though for most things in medicine, it's a far better non-toxic curative therapy. So this is what's happened. So demand therapies that work and demand therapies that, were, that are non-toxic. Change your lifestyle. And by that, there's all sorts of things. Uh, focus on family, focus on your community, learn how to cook. Um, uh, and you can, go, you can go on, be careful about what you consume. Be careful about who you're buying from. Of course, these are still all individual things, but in essence, they are activists because you're not supporting the machine. Try to do everything you can to undermine the machine. Now, doing that on your own might not seem like it's going to help, and doing it on your own doesn't help. It's only when everyone does it that it helps. And then what else we can do is everyone, should be, everyone that can should become an activist in some way. Okay, and you can protest, you can write your congressperson, which almost all Americans don't do. You can call your senator. I mean, I, during the, um, the midterms, I was calling a senator or a congressman daily and leaving a message. It might not, for me to do it, might not have an effect, but if everybody does it, if, if seven out of 10 people want a progressive agenda and they all call, they're saying, you know, we're gonna see that we don't reelect you unless you stop being an asshole, you know, unless you stop being a greedy, bought and sold person because of your donors. You know, if everyone's saying that, that will have an effect. Um, it may not fix it, but it'll have an effect. Run for office. People, you know, the pro one of the big problems we have is that po politics became so dirty, particularly with the, elect the assassination of JFK, that smart people, ethical people and moral people stopped going into politics. That is changing right now. You know, AOC and people like that, boy, if we only had 50 more of her in Congress. But the system is corrupt. So she is becoming less of a force the, more, the longer she stays there. She cannot do it by herself, okay? Um, and so we need to change legislation and there's all sorts of things that we need to do. And I guess lastly, raise your awareness. And I don't mean, um, you know, about, you know, your spirituality and things like this, which of course we should all do. We should all be looking at energy medicine. We should all be looking at meditation. We should all be looking at indigenous healing. We should all be looking at Reiki. We should all be looking at crystal healing, whatever, you know, whatever you resonate with, we should all be doing that. 
But what I mean by raise awareness is become educated. Start reading books, books by brilliant people, and they come out every day that have synthesized, worked on, structuralized, investigated, and researched the topic that you're reading about. You know, I don't read an intercept, inter, 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 internet meme about the problems with vaccination. I read one of the four, and I mean only four or five major works that have been done on this topic that aren't just part of the party line. And they are done by scientists or lawyers or someone else that have done a very good job. But unless you read those, you will have a minimum education. And people say, well, how do you read so much? I'm like, well, you know, I got a, I got a pile of books on every toilet in the house and I got a pile of books in my car when I got to stop and wait somewhere and you know I just have books all around and I read and keep my place in the book and I keep reading and reading and reading you can get some of it online you can look up good stuff online too to read but you've got to educate yourself so by awareness I mean understand that we have we have given up on our self-governance so for example I'll give one quick example we've never revised our constitution our constitution is 200 years old plus. Thomas Jefferson said you have to revise this every 18 years minimally or things aren't gonna work. Each new generation will not have its input. Times are gonna change. He says if you don't revise it, this is what he said, if you don't revise it, the mercantile class will become strong enough that it will buy and sell your governance. Oh gee, we're 14 revisions behind, look what has happened. We don't take responsibility. There's so much we have to do, but people are gonna to have to understand that our system is broken, that it doesn't work. What do we need a Senate for? Just to throw out some ideas. Two guys from Rhode Island, the, uh, the asteroid's coming to Earth, we gotta decide if we're gonna nuke it before it destroys the planet. And two guys from Rhode Island who represent nobody block two guys from California who represent 30% of the population. So the asteroid hits us. We don't have a functional structure in our government. Okay, there are many, many things that need to be changed, but they won't be changed because everyone is profiting off the status quo. So until people are not only activists, but until they educate themselves enough about history, about economics, about how things work, about what's needed to be changed, then it's very hard for people to be activists who are not articulate. So activists must also not only unify, they must be articulate. So that's one of my biggest things is that, you know, we, we have um, serious, serious trouble. One book I will also mention is The End of Ice by Dar Jamal. And Dar Jamal is an American who was a reporter during the Iraq war, became good friends with a lot, of, a lot of Iraqis. And he's been an avid glacier climber and mountaineer and nature person his whole life, uh, a great rock climber and everything else. And I guess I'll end with this because I've read lots of books on climate change, but he starts out about glaciers and he shows how fast they are all dissolving right now. And it's pretty much to the point of no return with our glaciers. They're all on the way out over the next 10, 20 years. You know, our sea levels are going to rise. We're not gonna stop that. We can mitigate it, but we can't stop it. So we've already lost thousands of ecosystems and thousands of species, and we're gonna to continue to lose thousands of species on Earth. And we're gonna to continue to have problems because of our overconsumption and our overuse of fossil fuels and our ignorance and our willingness to sit in our house and be comfortable instead of being an activist about this. But he goes from, um, you know, if you just go to the end of ice on Amazon and you look at the 
the uh, table of contents, you'll see um, that he goes from the glaciers to the, the American forest, to the Amazon forests, to the islands and the fate of what's gonna happen in the islands and um, uh, back to the mountains and the glaciers. And every chapter of this book, I had to take a break because it about had me in tears. Because the essence of what he's saying is, you know, you don't think you're gonna mitigate this. Don't think something's gonna save this. We've already lost this. We've already lost so much. Until you can understand how much we've lost, and this doesn't just apply to climate change, but until you can understand and you really know and can feel how much we've lost, we're not gonna be able to move forward. Until you know how much you've lost and what's not coming back, you're not gonna be an activist. Okay, so rather than being in denial and rather than being a touchy-feely person that knows how to make me and my brother feel good, you know, there, there needs to be a deep grieving that takes part on the part of humanity by humanity. And one of the biggest misconceptions that I see and that I hear every day is that it's all just human nature. Human beings are just this way. This, this is not human nature, okay? This is the human condition. There's a difference. And as I started my ranting and raving with, I said, origins of life were based on cooperation and taking care of it, more or less. Okay, and so the human nature is that we are good custodians of the planet. You can go to many religious things, but you go to the Bible and in Genesis, it says every first, first at first, when the God creates the earth, he's saying, let there be light, let there be water. But when he starts getting to animals, he starts talking about, it. he says, every species on earth, every animal is to be fed and taken care of, all of them. This is right in Genesis. So right there in Genesis, it's giving humanity directive that, you know, I'm giving you this beauty. Take care of it. Don't, don't piss on it. Okay. So, um, you know, human nature is that. The human condition is what happens when you have greedy people. <laughs> and I, I would just like to end with that distinction because if you hear this is just human nature to want more money than everybody else. A red flag should come up. You're being lied to again. It's another brainwashing technique. Don't listen to it. You covered a lot. I can't help it. I was I'm about to ask, what, does it really matter who is the head of the state? when the structure is still so broken. Emphasis on who's president. Donald Trump is a result of our sins. He's a result of the sociopath. You never could put someone like that in the presidency unless your social structure created the opportunity to do that. You know, he's, uh, I will mention another book. Um, the, the Dangerous Case of Donald Trump 37 psychiatrists and mental health um, uh, professionals analyzed the president. The uh, APA broke tradition and said, it's our tradition not to diagnose politicians. But in this case, we're making an exception because the danger to the planet and to people is so grave. 
It, well, first it was 27, and they just came out with a new edition last year. It's now 37 essays. Another book to read is called Malignant Narcissism and Power. And this is a psychodynamic analysis historically about malignant narcissist leaders and what happens. And there's a very good quote I vaguely remember at the end of that book that says, you know, well, there are these followers, 20% of people still support this guy. He says, well, just because they're out there doing things doesn't mean they're not mentally ill. You know, you can have 20 or 30% of your population in a sociopathic society that are severely mentally ill and appear to be normal. So, you're, so it, what matters is, do we create a structure that puts good, moral, smart, concerned, enlightened people in place? And so it, it, it matters, you know, Bernie Sanders would matter immensely compared to Donald Trump. But he would only be able to do so much because the corruption is going to still be there. You know, and until you fix that, until you get money out of politics and stop buying off our politicians, start having legalized, stop having legalized bribery and all these things, nothing's going to really be changed to the extent that we can act rapidly the way we need to. This is why the input from a unified activism becomes so important because we're all already way behind. We got to, 50 lap marathon, and we've let everyone else do 20 laps. Now we got to catch up. Okay, and so only if we don't become activists, then what's going to motivate us is catastrophe as it is now. This pandemic was not the result of, it just had to happen. This pandemic was in part the result of global unrest and global dysfunction. And the reason it's so bad in America is because 40 years of trickle-down economics have depleted our social spending. And 37 states out of 50 right now have not come close to meeting their testing goals. You know, when South Korea, Vietnam, and places like this can meet their testing goals and shut down this virus and we can't, it gives us a new status in whether we're a first world country or a third world country. Okay, so yes, you're exactly right. Uh, unless we fix the system, unless we change that, it's gonna go up and down in a downward spiral instead of up and down in an upward spiral. So for all those listeners and those who are aware that these things are happening, what, can, what, what do you think you can suggest so that you can sleep better at night. <laughs> well, I think I, I kind of went over a list. I mean, by all means, do not give up <laughs> your ability to become centered within yourself. I mean, that's very, very important, but demand the proper food, demand the proper therapies, demand things from your politicians, start doing that. See, in the 1950s, American communities started to deteriorate. And there's a great book that was written quite some time ago on this, Putnam out of uh, Harvard, Calling, called Bowling Alone, because from the 1950s on, after World War II, gradually, and, and then especially after the 1960s, people stopped going to church. People stopped going to community meetings. People stopped writing their politicians. People stopped donating to causes compared to what they used to do. It was far better in the 1930s, even during the Depression, than it was af afterwards. Okay, so communities fell apart as well. And he tries to analyze why this happened. 
And if you look at it, he only knows about 50 in that book. And I, I really just really wish he would do an update with more data because in that book, he could only account for 50% of this effect. One was something about the TV generator. So now we don't just have the TV generation, we have the digital age generation, okay? Being responsible for the destruction of local commu communities. Okay, and uh, there were various things. Uh, one of was that two people in every household had to work, maldistribution of wealth. So everybody had to work. There was no organizer at home to help keep the community together and keep the neighbors together. I mean, I live in a, a suburb, everyone has a half an acre yard and I live in a subdivision and there's maybe 50, 60, 70 houses and nobody knows each other. Yeah, you know, it's like, <laughs> so our community has become global. We're trying to figure that out. Okay. There's no, no black party? There, yeah, exactly. There's, there, there is, here there is once a year and nobody goes to it. Yeah, so, That's yeah. not a lot. Right. So, um, so, so, you know, um, uh, so I can go on and on about this, but um, I would say uh, become, what can we do? I, I kind of went over the list, food therapies, become an activist, take care of your family, get involved in your community. But more than that, start getting involved at a federal level and a state level. Complain, call your politician, write send letters, donate to causes. If you can't be an activist, donate to causes that are trying to stop this crap, okay? Because we are in really, really big trouble right now. I've been around for a while, like you said. I started paying attention to politics when I was in high school and I watched Watergate on TV. I'll say two more things. If you don't believe we're in big trouble, can I convince you? Well, um, 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 Watergate, compared to what I'm seeing now, Watergate was a walk through the tulips. Okay. Um, uh, George Bush Jr. was very bad. He went into Iraq in an illegal war and the result was 200,000 to 600,000 civilian, innocent civilian deaths. He's nothing other than a war criminal. I'll make that statement. Try to argue that, you really can't. We're the only country that's dropped two nuclear bombs on people that we didn't have to. We could have dropped them offshore and said, see, surrender or you're gonna, we're gonna drop them on you. We could have done that. But dark forces wanted to know, they wanted to study what these things would do to people. Okay, this is, this is America. We had how many hundreds of years of slavery, Jim Crow, and we still operate on a master slave dynamic and we haven't fixed it. You must understand what our faults are. Okay, so this is another thing that one can do is stop thinking that we are good and that we can rest on our laurels, we cannot, okay? And so protest, become an activist, write, do what you can and keep your balance going, of course. That, I mean, I don't have all the answers here, but that's what I can say. So. And so what does Dr. Tom love most in your life right now? <laughs> uh, writing poetry, um, uh, meeting people, traveling, um, composing songs, which is mostly on the piano, um, having a really good session with a patient, um, talking to friends that understand me and don't think I'm, they understand 
pretty normal from the standpoint of where we mutually came from. So the pe people that I went to college with talk like me and understand me. Loan, cooking, definitely cooking, uh, shopping for, for Whole Food and being out in that community, uh, writing, I, I, I write, uh, I used, I used, I wrote for a long time for local newspapers and I've got books that haven't been published. So now I just write on the, the page that you can give everyone. Uh, it's actually facebook.com forward slash D R T O M D C O M. There's no dot there on that second column. So it's facebook.com forward slash R T O M M D C O M. And that will get you to my ranting and raving page, which are all rough drafts of articles that I copyright and collect. Okay, so that kind of just keeps me sane. And so I can rant and rave in an article instead of being angry at everybody all day. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Anytime, anytime. And, uh, uh, I want to thank also the, the listeners, the viewers, our audience, and hopefully we were able to justify the time that they spent listening to this because it's good to hear different perspective and then when at some point it's our responsibility to do our own research so i, I was gonna ask uh, i su suggest to you tom later please you can please email me perhaps the books that you're recommending because or the research that you want uh, just suggested again for people to read because what I can do is post, include that in the description of the episode, okay? Yeah, I can, I, I can do that. And also, if you go to that page, I put those books in the reference, in the comments section of the articles. And if you hate anything I said, you can always, you know, uh, private message me on that site. Um, there's a way to do that. And if you make a comment, I will answer it. Um, if it's like... Um, an inappropriate comment, I'll delete it, but I've never had, never had an inappropriate comment. So, so anyway, that's another way to see the books. And I am always coming up with new books and I'm always putting them in the comment section of my own articles. Okay. And I'd like to end by, um, you know, doing my quantum affirmation. And what I do is every day I have those, um, that's one of my tools for my sanity, for my spirituality. So I pull from the quantum tools, uh, from the quantum cards, one card, and I kind of have that intention, what must I focus today? Or, you know, kind of make me strong for the day. So this one, this is what I got. That's what I said, what can I share with Tom? So it says, asking for guidance. He said, whenever I need answers, I humbly ask for spiritual guidance. I am open to the answers I receive. Then I act with love and thanksgiving. I say this three times. So whenever I need answers, I humbly ask for spiritual guidance. I am open to the answers I receive. Then I act with love and thanksgiving. Whenever I need answers, I humbly ask for spiritual guidance. I am open to the answers I receive. Then I act with love and thanksgiving. So as you, as you know, Tom, this podcast really came out of this env environment where I feel like I'm getting choked and I 
can't express myself or there's so much censoring here and there. Um, so that's why I said, okay, it's time to give birth to something that I can invite others to have a platform and express their observations, their experiences that might be helpful for others. And hopefully we could have an impact in this is my form of activism. Yes. And, okay. So thank you so much again. And thank I'll you. make sure I put all that information. Now I may I'll send you the link of this and I may do it in two I may split it. Just okay. just give chance. Sometimes I do the whole thing and then I will split it for people who said, Oh, this is too long. I, I want but you know, they have a choice here. Here's a shorter one. If you want the next one, then go ahead and do it. Okay? Okay, sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks again for all the audience. Anytime. See you later. And in my language, we say mabalos. Thank mabalos. you. Mabalos. Okay. Bye. Bye.